I think we'll just get started and yeah, we'll take her in here. Great. Um, hi, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us. My name is Elisa Caffrey, and I am a grad student in Justin Sonnenberg's lab here at Stanford University. And on behalf of my co-organizers, David Zilper and Justin Sonnenberg, I want to welcome all of you to the Fermentation and Health Speaker Series from the Center of Human Microbiome Studies at Stanford University School of Medicine. And throughout this series, we have been fortunate enough to hear from those who research fermented foods and those who make fermented foods, and some who do both. Um, and even though they have all spoken about the same fields, about a, a microbiome within a food and health context, you may have noticed how the language that's used to describe these microbial food and human relationships have differed from presenter to presenter, depending on their background or training and the context in which they're presenting. And you might also have noticed that in your own fermentation practice, how language you use or language you hear that describes fermentation can change depending on that context. Uh, even looking at the simplest example, it's very common to describe fermentation as a process where you have good microbes that increase and bad microbes decrease. But what does that even mean? And how does the language we use to discuss, discuss microbial communities impact the way in which we perform the research and then make these health recommendations? And as exciting as fermentation health research is, how can the way in which we're presenting our findings lead to potential misrepresentation of the results? And so with all of that in mind, I want to present our speaker, Dr. Maya Hay. Dr. Maya Hay is a researcher at the Center for the Social Study of Microbes that's based at the University of Helsinki. Um, she's been studying fermentation health for the past 15 years and holds degrees in nutrition and food studies and communication. She also leads the Food Feminism Fermentation Group, which we will link later for everyone to Maya's work since reading her paper on attunement and multi-species communication and fermentation uh, from 2021, uh, which led me to read some of other her other great work, uh, including a paper called Against Healthiest Fermentation, um, Problematizing the Good of Gut Health and Ferments, which I really loved um, and found made me really reconsider some of the language and approach that I've been taking to my work. And so with that, I'm just so excited to have Maya with us today. Um, so with that, Maya, take it away. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. You make me blush. All right. I do have some slides that I'd like to share. And do you see what I see? Great. Yes. Oh, actually, my apologies. Here we are. Classic. The academic who can't find the top of her slides. Hmm. So as uh, Lisa mentioned, I come from a nutrition background and during my rotations, I routinely faced the reality that knowledge does not change behavior and that scientific knowledge alone does not change attitudes about what to eat or what is healthy. And I don't mean to start out as a pessimist and I start with the knowledge does not equal action because there are multiple knowledges about fermentation and health. And you'll see why I've put a fly up here by the end of my talk and that these knowledges, plural, I argue are crucial. And after studying food and health for the past 15 years and the practices of fermentation for the past 10, I continually get desperate questions about what are we to do about you know, what to eat, how much, how often, and I'm all for answers. But I also think that one of the frustrating slash exciting things about fermentation is that there is no capital A answer in the back of the book, right? And that that's why there are as many dogmas about how to brew booch as there are hacks and the same goes for sourdough and pretty much every other ferment. 
In other words, there is no one expert, except that experts are experts in their own particularities of place, their particular tools, and their batches. And this is part of what I mean by knowledge is about fermentation and health. And in my talk today, um, I'm trying to kind of propose a new way of thinking. And my hope is that we as a holistic research community can advance the study of fermentation if we consult, collaborate, and coordinate with each other as consortia of life scientists, social scientists, hum humanities scholars, chefs, business owners, household practitioners, and that because we all have partial perspectives on how fermentation and health come to be. And after working across different disciplines, I want to change research cultures from within and model something different. And my hope is to aim for a coalition of sorts with different expertises to offer by frequently and upstream consultations and collaborations. My talk is divided into three parts. I'll first explain why this type of cultural shift is even worthwhile. Then I'll go into detail about three, three areas in particular. These are just tastings, if you will, uh, looking at the social, the rhetorical and philosophical dimensions. Uh, and then I will also uh, end my talk with key uh, suggestions on what I think could offer insights for future studies um, on how we can and perhaps ought to proceed as we continue to discover more things about the gut microbiome. So why bother changing research culture from within? Well, history tells us that if we are to see the world benefit from scientific research, then we, we will need more than sound science. And here are some examples to really demonstrate the need to go beyond the science. We know that vaccines work. We know this from randomized control trials. We have known this since Pasteurian times when Louis Pasteur famously inoculated half of a sheep field with the anthrax vaccine and the other half not. You can imagine which side died. And the issue with vaccines has never been about incomplete science. Instead, issue with today's vaccines are based on public mistrust in science and or exploited uh, communities who are understandably uh, hesitant, or there might be some pushback against authoritarian aspects of science-based policies. So we see that problems of vaccines today are based on more historical, political, and philosophical dimensions of uh, an individual agency or as healthy communities. And my second example is anti-GMO sentiment, which could be seen as a hangover from Green Revolution times and the rush to develop transgenics. And as a result, today we see a strong categorical dismissal of frankenfood. Again, the issue is not with science, but with geopolitical, economic, and ideological dimensions of what science can do or is made to do in a capitalist society. And the same could be said of countless other problems where science is called in as a solution, when the problems might be so multifaceted that a scientific solution is only but one face. It's a bit like the parable of the blind men and the elephant, where depending on which facet the, uh, of the elephant that they're touching, they may think of the elephant as a different thing, right? Um, and so in this metaphor, science is only one of the blind men. Now, as a counter argument, one might say that, well, vaccines and GMOs, those are based on innovation and that researchers of today are actually trying to identify the parameters for how gut health works. Yes, agreed. 
And the same could be said about the Human Genome Project, which also wanted to identify the parameters for how the human genome works. And here I'll draw upon Alondra Nelson, who now leads the Office of Science and Technology Policy under Biden, who explains how basic discoveries in genomics had unintentionally underwrote a very racialized and problematic under, uh, industry in gene testing. And other scholars have also connected the outcomes of genomics research to movements in white nationalism and eugenics. And so I start with these examples not to charge scientific research with being myopic and certainly not to be the boy who cried wolf. But I start with these examples because I see an opportunity for this kind of research to really make a difference if more than scientific details are part of the conversation. And if precedence tells us anything, doing so could prevent unintended effects down the line. And before I transition into my next section of my talk, I want to pause and explain by what, uh, what I mean or my approach to social in social science. Today, most of the public conversation about fermentation and health boils down to some version of this axiom. Eat more ferments because the microbes or enzymes are good for you. And scientific research like the FIFIFO study published in 2021 by the Sonnenberg Lab has substantiated this, and we need more studies like this. At the same time, nonnas and aunties and communities around the world have known this knowledge too, intrinsically, for centuries. And we I see this tremendous potential to really integrate this passed down practical know-how from everyday people, along with the more mechanistic understandings of fermentation and health. But in order to do so, we will need to understand the softer data from all different kinds of people, as well as the many ways that this axiom plays into our everyday lives. And so my interest in food ideologies, which we might say follows this axiom of, uh, or this pattern of eat more X because Y is good for Z, builds on this growing scholarship coming out of sociology and critical dietetics. And these disciplines focus on the power relations that animate food and health systems. And they offer also methods for zooming down to the level of the individual and zooming back out to society writ large to see more macro level effects. And so I use these authors to study not just what is health, but how health gets imagined and practiced by different people. So this is my approach to the social and the social dimensions to studying fermentation. Fermentation and health are not only biological processes. We know this. Uh, they are also uh, they also affect and are affected by uh, how we interact with other creatures, how we grow and move across time and space. I also mean social as in social practices we learn, like washing hands, cooking meals, greeting members of our community, as well as the societal aspects that regulate our food system, such as a nine to five work day or a best before sticker that's placed on a refrigerated product. In fermentation practices, we know that microbes literally mingle and move from one place to another or from one body to another. Research coming out of Rob Dunn's lab, who I know is our next speaker, uh, Rob Dunn can tell us that uh, the microbes that make sourdough bread unique have more resemblance with the baker's hands than the environment or the substrate. And we also know from Ben Wolf's lab that the lactic acid bacteria that jumpstart ferments like kraut and kimchi are more likely to come from how a cabbage plant interacts with 
insects and birds more than the soil or the plant itself. So as more experiments aim to understand the connection between ferments and, and health, I suggest we go beyond the yes, no quantitative question of do ferments make a difference in health outcomes to the more open-ended question of how exactly do ferments make a difference in health outcomes and for whom does this matter? The how here aims for more than just a mechanistic understanding of what a microbe produces. It attempts to zoom outward to see the bigger picture of where those microbes came from, from whom or from which interactions. And so I ask you to recall the two previous examples from before, because a baker's hands come into contact with many different things. They are social in that way. And that shows up in the sourdough. And it's because cabbages socialize in their interactions with birds and insects that they become seeded with lactic acid bacteria. So I suggest we take the social lives of humans, the social lives of plants and critters seriously. And looking at microbes and foods, we might ask, what's the difference between homemade or store-bought ferments or between ferments that are pasteurized and then reseeded versus raw? Who's there when we use substrates that are treated with radiation or agrochemicals or water treated with chlorine and fluoride? Because, you know, this is all part of our food system, right? And what changes take place over time? When do ferments change in the microbial makeup from the time of inoculation to storage on a shelf to consumption? Again, these are questions that all have scientific facets to them, but I wanna focus on how microbes move around and how microbes socialize with humans and other creatures who are also moving around and socializing in our various systems. So continuing on the question parade, when exactly was the data collected relative to when certain, uh, certain microbes were most active? Um, and does it matter, right? Echoing, I think, a talk that Dr. Devkota gave, should we be really pursuing postbiotics? And how many of the microbes make it past the acidity of the stomach? Are my cells truly necessary to guarantee safe passage? Slash what else was consumed with the ferment to enable or hinder a particular health marker? Are there particular social interactions that help promote that health marker, such as communal cooking or dining slowly? And of course, I'll be the first to acknowledge that these are very difficult and hyper niche questions, many of which may epitomize the difference between basic research and applied research. And that's a very valid counter argument. And for those who don't know the difference between the two, basic discovery is more curiosity driven and applied research is trying to address a particular problem. You might've already figured that out, but what might not be immediately apparent is that uh, funders and institutions will often commit to one and not the other. I'll say also that our media outlets don't really differentiate between the two. So when things like the FIFO study came out, Journalists were quick to pick up that eating six servings of ferments was the answer to all ills of all times, often omitting the part about it being a pilot study to find the signal. It also omitted a whole bunch of other details that I'm sure uh, Justin could fill in if, if, if needed. Now, I'll return to this point later about journalism and science communication towards the end of my talk, but for now, I just want to highlight the fact that there is often a, a game of broken telephone or dilution where one message based on a lab setting is very different than the message being promoted in public discourse. 
So then if we are to kind of return to our refrain from earlier, then to eat more ferment because the microbes are good for your gut, we see that there is so much more to each of these words in that axiom. And this brings me to my next point about how words matter. When people hear the word rhetorical, it is often in the context of someone asking an empty question more for an effect than to really answer it in earnest. And I use the term rhetorical to mean more the techniques or the choices in language used for some intended purpose or some intended audience. And this includes the use of metaphor or figurative language. And for this audience, a very um, tangible example might be the, the war on germs, right, which was a very intentional phrase used to mobilize public health policy from wartime era to global pandemics. And while that achieved its purpose, we're starting to see the limits of that rhetorical maneuver every time we have to dispel, well, not all microbes are bad, right? And for those who don't recognize the image, this is a close-up shot of calm yeast, which frequently shows up on top of ferments. And we use all kinds of metaphors to explain fermentation and health. And I find that describing ferments in terms of ecologies is particularly helpful because it shows the value of biodiversity. And Alex Hosvin, who was an earlier speaker in this series, mentioned this in her talk as well, how eating ferments meant eating more complex ecosystems whose diversity had value as it became part of one's own ecosystem. And other social scientists, such as Emily Yates-Dorr, and Megan Carney also write about kitchen ecologies, how home cooks cared not for individual health, but for entire meals, and that in their kitchen activity, their, um, their kitchen activity was aiming for the health of whole families or the sustainability of their whole yard. And this metaphor then allows us to trace microbial ecologies across different spaces and really connect soil ecologies with kitchen ecologies with gut ecologies and maybe back. But metaphors can also go awry. And so here's an example of a metaphor used to illustrate the harmful effects of pro prolonged antibiotic use. And the metaphor tries to compare gut health as a pristine lawn. So here, flora are thriving until exposed to antibiotics and that uh, like pesticides can create dead spots on that lawn. So far, so good, the metaphor stands. This is where things start to go awry. Lawn maintenance connotes control and order. So think of like Versailles as the extreme lawn example, when actually the gut might be better described as an environment that's always in flux, more like a prairie, argues Jane Dryden. Dryden is a humanities scholar who argues that to think of the gut as a prairie helps us move away from the manicured lawns and instead shifts our attention to how prairies need certain kinds of interventions and only sometimes, like removing thistles or not anything else, or letting some wildfires burn off saplings so that the grasslands can remain grassy and not become a woodland forest, for instance. Going back to the lawn maintenance metaphor, curating lawns towards an ideal assumes that there is a normative interpretation of what flora should look like. And in a recent article, Dryden argues that therapies aimed at fixing gut microbiomes reinforce this narrow definition of what health means or looks like. Of course, how we think about health is tied to how we think about bodies. And this is where I'll turn now to the philosophical dimensions. And since the Enlightenment, the human body has been thought of as a very distinct and autonomous being. 
a healthy body or a not healthy body was then defined by what invades, infects, or otherwise interferes with that sovereign body. And this reinforces a clear boundary of internal self, internally governed functions, and external objects that either help or hinder that body. Of course, uh, eating complicates this interior-exterior binary because the inside of our alimentary canal is actually the outside world because we are a tube. And in this tube, food and ferments turn into waste. And I'll point out that we use feces as a way to distinguish the human animal from all other animals or even some humans to be above other humans. Here are some tangible examples of that thought and that thinking. We take care of our bowel movements in very discreet ways, not in the open, but in water closets, lavatories, outhouses, away from polite company, but that we are not like other animals, certainly not like rabbits who redigest their own excrement to survive. And yet we kind of are like rabbits, or at least some of us are, if you have ever consumed the popular probiotic uh, Bifidobacterium longum, some species infantis, which, as the name implies, came from a healthy infant in 1963 Germany. Back then, the stool sample was analyzed, isolated, the bacteria was commercialized, and 40 years later has now been distributed to China, France, uh, Japan, Italy, Spain, Indonesia, a couple other countries, um, in products ranging from pills to drinks to fortified cereals. And most microbes taken from... Um, uh, so most microbes taken from elsewhere are really difficult to culture in the lab, but this one had so much reach because it was so effective. So I mentioned that because any success in the lab is often the result of countless failures that non-scientists rarely see. And it's easy to think of people doing science as infallible because science itself has to be infallible in order for it to be called science, but I think there's a danger in thinking that scientists are error-free and invincible when we humans are anything but that. And philosophically speaking, this kind of logic reinforces this myth that we humans can harness and domesticate any microbe and commandeer it to our will. Synthetic biology is, I think, a really extreme version of that. And we can also look to the rise in antimicrobial resistance, which throws a wrench into that kind of control-minded uh, control mindedness. And a related philosophy is thinking that since humans and microbes co-evolved together, that we are in this symbiosis and that everything will turn out fine in the end. And we can kind of point to uh, mitochondria, the powerhouse of our cells that used to be standalone a microbe and say, see, our cells merge together. We live in symbiosis now. And we can maybe say the same about starter cultures and say, well, we feed each other symbiotically. But Symbiosis is a slippery term, and it's, it, it is a type of slipperiness that has drawn attention from philosophers such as Lisa Heldke, um, who argues, quote, this ambiguity on symbiosis as a term supports the notion that friendly relations among organisms are the norm and unfriendly relationships as accidents, mistakes, or things to be otherwise gotten over. And this kind of thinking goes hand in glove with our tendency to believe that life is evolving toward a time in which the parasitic equivalent of the lion will definitely lie down peaceably with the host equivalent of the lamb. The hostile bacterium will become the friendly, useful mitochondria every time." End quote. 
So I've covered a lot of information here about philosophy and ideas, as well as rhetoric and words, um, social lives of microbes, of plants, of people. And this all leads up to this. We are ready for more nuanced research on how ferments and health come to be. We need experiments that connect fermentation and health with their specific social context, and we need agricultural, economic, historical factors, and then some. And these cannot be tackled by science alone, hence my suggestion for frequent and upstream conversations with experts outside of the life sciences. And based on my vantage point, I suggest the following areas be considered from the point of research design all the way through to knowledge dissemination. Moving forward, let's pay attention to the use and the misuse of words. And this includes metaphors and figurative language, which work because they come with certain known assumptions that help us fill in the blanks. But this is also the double-edged sword that metaphors can both depict and distort. Language does that, it depicts and it distorts. And because of their origins and etymologies, they come with assumptions that are never innocent. And when considering words, then think about for whom are these words or metaphors useful, in what contexts, and when do they fall apart? For those of you who know the kombucha girl meme, this next slide is for you. We need less militaristic metaphors, and instead we would benefit from thinking about microbial ecosystems traversing soil, kitchen, and gut biomes. My second suggestion is to look at the stories and motivations behind ferments, health, and experimentation, especially in a Eurocolonial context. Let's not forget that Western science was built on foundations of somewhat questionable ethics, ranging from histories of exhuming graves at midnight to exploiting certain populations. And this matters because at the heart of living well is the very political question of how we use others, other creatures, other people for their knowledge, other forms of labor, in order that we get to live or die better. And we should ask ourselves how we might be complicit in cycles of extraction. And I focus on extraction because today there is growing criticism about bioprospecting and extractivism. And we need fewer turkey basters, if you know what I mean. If you don't know what I mean, look up Jeff Leach. Um, and let's not forget that much of the recent fermentation revival in North America has taken up ferments from elsewhere, which Dr. Min Chan argues are often exoticized and then whitewashed in order to be accepted. And that is to say that both the microbes and the know-how have historically been extracted out of one place and made into a profit somewhere else, which begs the question who stands to gain in these relationships? Whose knowledge, whose, whose labors are we using and are we using them in just ways? And my final suggestion is this. Uh, let's aim for integrated transdisciplinary research from funding calls to publications to how you organize a lab. And while I appreciate how funders like NSF and NIH are trying to encourage thinking about the broader impacts or societal implications, we also know it's not the main focus. It is often an afterthought. And instead, let's begin with the understanding that we all have partial knowledges about how fermentation and health works. So it'll take all of us to make a wholesome image of what will sustain us and why. And with this in mind, let's move away from the tokenism and instead see disciplines as an expanded A-team. And in an ideal world, that A-team would also include 
journalists and writers for journalism too is a discipline. We know the efficacy of good nonfiction and we know that different groups are committing themselves to good science writing. So let's anticipate the broken telephone by building longstanding and trusted relationships with writers who can work with us and represent our work in accurate, transparent and compelling ways. And for those of you who might be thinking, no way, I don't have time to build trusted relationships. I gotta keep going. I'll leave you with this proverb. If you wanna go fast, go alone. If you wanna go far, go together. So as a recap, because I'm already at time, I've talked about how we need to change research cultures from within to gather as many partial perspectives on fermentation and health. I've highlighted some of the social, rhetorical, and philosophical dimensions that I think could inform future research directions. And I'm calling on this research community to take seriously the power of words, the histories and motivations that we've used in the past, as well as potential for transdisciplinarity. And I'll conclude with this, that Partial perspectives bring together partial knowledges. And here I call upon the metaphor of a compound lens to show the value of multiple partial perspectives. Rather than rely on microscopic or monoscopic vision, the compound lens of insects or crustaceans help bring those partial pieces uh, together. And when combined, these lenses can render a wide angle view of what we're seeing. And I think that this is a better approach to fermentation and health. Um, and this is uh, something that's been inspired by uh, feminist scientists who have been promoting this form of doing science since the late 80s and 90s. I'll stop here way over time. Special thanks to these folks. And for those of you who are listening, we can keep the conversation going by emailing me directly. Um, you can also find me at socialmicrobes.org. Thank you so much. That was fantastic, Maya. Thanks so much. Um, I think we're all going to have so many questions for you, um, but I it. wanted to start by asking the first one. Um, you mentioned you, the game of telephone and this misuse and use of words. Um, and I know that a lot of times we can do research in a lab, but then we are writing a paper for a scientific journal that usually requires a certain writing style. And then that's usually what ends up and a certain also number of words, they have all these requirements, what you can actually put in the paper. And then that's what's read by journalists and written up. And so I'm wondering if you could comment on uh, scientific journals themselves and say kind of what is the role of the scientific journal publisher in all of this and whether there should be other ways in which we can uh, present additional information on papers or, I don't know, changing the writing style to make it more approachable. Um, but yeah, kind of what the role is in this science communication. Yeah, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head, right? Like these different um, outputs, these different publications, they all have different audiences, different writing styles, different requirements and parameters, and frankly, like different ease or difficulty in publishing. Right. If we think of how easy it is to put on a blog post on like Huffington Post versus, you know, trying to publish something in nature. Right. Which might take revisions and years and a whole bunch of money to make that happen. So there's definitely um, some clarity uh, needed on the part of the reader that what you see as a scientific journal article may not be for you necessarily. Right. Scientific journal articles are for the scientific research community. That's why it's peer reviewed by peers in the scientific research community, right? Um, 
That said, I think one of the key things that I would love to see is the limitations paragraph, right? It's usually stuck at the very end of like, we did all this amazing thing. We've covered every single aspect that we can think of. And just so that we cover our butts for sure, this these are the limitations and it's at the very end. And I really wish editors uh, and editors of all scientific journals, please consider moving that a bit more to the front, not necessarily as a limitation, but as a way to frame the research of, here's why we did this. This is why it was important for us to keep this manageable not a limitation, we kept it manageable. And I think that that's more um, consistent with why the limitations exist in the first place, right? Is to make the research feasible. Um, and yeah, I think that the last thing I'll say is I wish there was more conversation or more chatter between these different groups, these different writers, right? The scientific writer, the journalist, the, the mommy blogger, the, you know, rando person reading the new, like I, I wish there was more conversations and more ways to inter interact and engage. And I don't know what that looks like. What I do know is that at least in academic conferences, we don't talk to each other anymore. Our papers talk to each other, right? Like how can we get people to talk to each other again is I think one of my, my key things that I, I want to pursue more. Um, great, I'll, I'll chime in. Uh, there's only compliments in the Q&A so far. So <laughs> while they are nice to get, uh, you don't need to answer them other than uh, you're welcome. Um, but great talk, Maya. Really, I, I think this has been uh, one of the highlights of the series so far for me. Um, and I loved your your kind of rethinking about these interactions between organisms as social. You know, when you talk about the social lives of hands and the baker, or the social lives of um, plants and the insects that visit them. And, and again, kind of linking back to Rob Dunn, he was the one who introduced me to the concept of, well, where do you think yeast overwinter, you know, yeah. when they come back and then inoculate the plants come spring, you know, in the bellies of, of, of wasps and bees. Mm -hmm. um, there is indeed like a sociality to all these things, like nothing exists in a vacuum. Um, and you know, maybe it's a little bit like the Tower of Babel, like you talked about, like, how do we come more into contact with, how do we facilitate these conversations with people who come from different backgrounds or, or have different levels of, of understanding or speak in different rhetorical terms, mm -hmm. as you discussed. Um, and sure, maybe this forum is helping to do that in some way. Um, but I'd, I'd, I'd kind of just like to have your take on the ease of dismissal or the ease of staying in one silo when it comes to really kind of going the extra mile to understanding these things. I mean, even in my own practice, it's so easy to lose people when mm -hmm. you want to explain how or why something happens. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just got into a conversation on Instagram with a commenter who was like, oh this thing you posted is it's it's 
it's going to lead people down the wrong path that you're, you're convincing people to do the bad thing. And I'm like, well, no, there's, there's nuance here. You know, I say that you should approach these things with caution. And just because something is wild doesn't necessarily mean it's safe. Just because something is home fermented doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's better. It's just more complex. Um, but that comes with its own set of risks. So how do we, you know, getting away from academia and papers, how do we just in, in the normal playing field of conversation, whether that's at a bar or with friends at dinner or, you know, on social media, not lose people when it comes to the nuance, because I think that's what journalism often leaves out in favor of sensationalist uh, kind of headlines. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start out by saying the difficulty of language should not be overlooked. And this might be in addition to actually your, your question, Lisa, that, you know, having having different languages across these different worlds, right? Academic language, I mean, within the disciplines is already different, difficult, right? That like scientific papers are often um, criticized for being written in the passive tense. And that's because you don't wanna attribute causality by writing it in the active voice, right? Of like, this made this happen, as opposed to this happened and it was observed, right? So there's a difficulty in not just how language is constructed, but also the words that we use. And I think, David, this goes to your question of how do you not lose people? I think that there is also a difficulty of just we live in a time where we are really used to a particular pace of information. Clickbait, clickbait, clickbait. Give me the information. I mean, since when are articles telling me how long of a read it is? Like, was that ever a thing? It was a recent, fairly recent thing in terms of journalism and histories of communications, right? For millennia that we've been communicating with each other. And I think that we've, we've lost the ability to just be patient and really sit with the uncomfortableness of not knowing, not knowing in full, that we need to know everything in full. And I think that that's when dinner conversations can start to kind of, you know, people glaze over of like, oh, you're talking about enzymes or something. I don't know what, are enzymes like microbes? Do they like multiply or something? You know, like I have this conversation with my neighbor all the time, right? Of like, no, actually, but. Um, so then there's, it's a pacing, it's a language issue. It's a pacing issue. I think also the part that I think good science writers do well is they make things tangible. They make it so vivid that you can see it, breathe it, smell it, envision it by just reading, right? Ed Yong, who doesn't want to work with Ed Yong, right? Everything he writes is gold because it brings the science to life. Carl Zimmer, same, right? And that these are like, we need to learn from these people of what they're doing and how they're doing it. And like I taught a, a, a composition course last uh, last year um, to science majors, and we dedicated a whole half of the semester to storytelling. How do you tell compelling stories without distorting it, right? How do you keep people's attention? Because our attention spans are, and we near, we're just running, we're like reading the news on our phone, and you know, as we're switching subways and going up and down stairs, or, right? So. Yeah, I think it's a compounded issue. It's not really helped by the fact that, you know, the, the, the scientific language is already a very specialized language. That's, that's maybe what I'll say. 
Uh, I'll also say this, um, going back to your comment about Rob Dunn, methodologically within the research community, we do not have ways of following microbes, not easily, right? We're used to take a sample, put it in a falcon tube, bring it back to the lab, culture it. If it's cultured, great. If it's not cultured, you try again, right? We can't really easily methodologically trace it from the, the wasp's gut over winter to the plant to the human who harvested it, to the person who made it, to the person who ate it out of our feces into the wastewater treatments and then back again. Like we have no way of tracing that. And I'm thinking here of the book, oh my goodness, this was from like early 2000s, maybe even late 90s, um, Four Seasons, Five Senses. It's written by a peach farmer in California who was trying to follow his peaches right? From the time, like he, he grew the tree, he harvested the peaches, and then he put it in a box and he tried to follow it, like follow the truck, follow it to the store, follow it to the person who bought it. And was just like, this was his nightmare of like this discombobulated food system, this sort of chimeric monster, right? And I, I, I just wish that we could methodologically think beyond the Petri plate and the falcon tube and the sample. How do we do that? Right, micro like the omics just give you a snapshot in time. How do you trace it? That's what I'm interested in. That was a bit of a ramble. Sorry. It was a good ramble. Thanks. It was a good ramble. <laughs> Maya, that was a, a beautiful talk. So much to to think about, and such a new perspective. I think for especially people that work in in biomedicine and are cranking through science, and just um, you know, I think your idea of of partnership and not the Kind of token person that you may talk to once in a while, but thinking about a team and an integration and yeah. a sustained interaction as a way of of changing how we think, um, because it is you know we get so siloed and so focused on you know funding and publications and getting people yeah. trained and and you know in addition to that teaching, but the teaching is usually very reflective of this very narrow view of the yeah. that entire kind of biomedical process. And so anyway, I really appreciated that that perspective and the the openness there. Um, yeah, and I, I would love to at, at some point think more with you about like what the different forms that could take in the context yeah. of a research um, yeah. uh, project or something like that. I think it's very exciting. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to hear a little bit more about, um, well, and any more comments you have on that, I'd love to hear. But the um, I was curious, one of the things that I've struggled with, I think, in um, both the research we do um, thinking about it and conveying it is the role of technology going forward and and just the kind of clash of that with my view of, you know, what I study, the gut microbial ecosystem yeah. and just how, you know, if you if you can establish some basic rules, you know, probably like 95, 99 percent of things will fall into place and then we can understand the things that don't in a little more detail yeah. for maybe therapeutic intervention or yeah. engineering or, or however you want to think about it. But yeah. um, there is an aspect of urgency that I see both in terms of like the ecosystem we've created in society and what we default yeah. to in terms of food and treatment of our microbes. And yeah. then also just kind of the mismatch of the, you know, genes that you know, are largely a product of an ancient environment and kind of what we're confronted with now. And there's, those are, those are similar, but a little bit different because, you know, I think that even if we built an incredibly healthy ecosystem for, for instance, food, 
and maybe medicine and how that those treated the microbes, we'd still be in many cases stuck with this clash of being in a free and affluent society and having things available that were never available in abundance, you know, whenever we wanted. And, you know, I'm thinking particularly about like sweets and, you know, how the Hadza get honey versus how we get honey. And yeah. yet they're both like very delicious things for, you know, every population on the planet pretty much that experiences eating honey. And, and, um, and so it, it makes me think that like, there is a role for technology to play in terms of um, somehow countering or, or, or dealing with that incompatibility in an efficient way, maybe not the best way, but a way that's practical and more within reach in the short term to help more people. And so anyway, I'd love to hear, um, I, it's a very narrow view of a very big topic, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I'll first address your first question about what forms um, of research or like what shape would partnered partnership research look like? And it's it's a difficult one, I think, but I think it's not impossible, double negative. Um, and I think that places like foundations like Sloan, right, are, are geared for that type of, like they have a whole thing dedicated on the public understanding of science, right? And trying to marry um, the life sciences with humanities, right? And I think that there are even humanities-based foundations like Mellon who would be interested in this kind of work. And I think it actually speaks to less so funding opportunities, but like more structural incentives Right, because as trainees, especially that, you know, if the the academic system is such where the metrics of which by which you're evaluated are publications and high ranking journals with high impact factors, right, patents, uh, and you know, and and partnership and working and public, you know, engagement is such a sort of low hanging, low metric thing. Then why even bother? Right, it, it sort of becomes this um, anomaly as opposed to making it a default switch. And so that's that's gonna take a little bit more than just finding the right funder to like do this, you know, one-off thing of like, oh yeah, they're doing some like outreach stuff on fermentation, right? So that, that I think takes a little bit more work and it needs buy-in from a much higher place. So, I'd love to think more of that, uh, more through that with you, but those are kind of where my initial thoughts are. As a, for your second question on, you know, the role of technology and the urgency and, you know, the different ways that in a way, I mean, or what I'm, what I'm taking or reading between the lines is how do we deal with modernity, right? And, and how do we still continue with the modernity, the modernity issue? capital M. And I think that the urgency is real. I don't want to um, diminish that. But again, I go back to the proverb of do we want to get there faster? Do we want to get farther? And I think that there is a, there is some wisdom in slowing down, if only temporarily, and go, are we just, you know, banging our heads against the same wall? Are we all banging our heads against the same wall? As, and if so, how can we not, because head hurts from banging, 
and how can we think differently, right? So for instance, um, cohort size, right, is a commonly evoked um, uh, sort of parameter for um, objectivity and sort of relevancy and value in any sort of scientific study. And of course, the more you uh, open up your cohort and your participants, the more unruly and unfeasible the study gets very quickly. I don't need to explain this to you. You live this on a daily basis. What if instead, instead of trying to um, uh, control the cohort numbers or to make the numbers so big that any sort of variation within the cohort is negligible because it's a representative sample size? What if instead we looked at a population of N equals one? What if we sequenced one person and we knew everything that they did? And what if we put them not in a metabolic kitchen, right? Because metabolic kitchens existed after nutrition became a real thing, right? As a real area of study. What if we had microbial kitchens? Could we create a facility like a microbial kitchen that charts where every microbe is in the same way that metabolic kitchens chart where every single calorie is and where every single gram of every single everything is, right? How can we create that kind of weird, Sure, but a different way of thinking, right? And I think this is where we need to break away from the like, well, this is what we've been doing for forever and we know it works, so we're gonna continue doing this. We've isolated nine variables so that the 10th one, we know what it does, right? Let's let's shake that up a bit. And I'm not just, you know, what if, like I'm basing this off of people I know, like um, you, I don't know, you probably know him or know of him, there's a really great uh, biologist in Canada and Montreal um, by the name of Francois-Joseph Lapointe. He is a biologist first and then also a performance artist second. And he has done all kinds of interventions. And he has, because he is charting his own microbiome, he has a reference microbiome of his whole body, also of his family, right? And he has done all sorts of fun experiments like... Um, he went to Copenhagen, did a whole thing uh, at the Medical Museum of eating Danish foods and seeing if he could become Danish by, by charting his microbiome and charting the, you know, the genetic components of the, the foods that he was eating there, right? And, and so on and so forth. And he's done one with bats becoming Batman. He's done like all sorts of things. Um, he's like, so the fact that he can do that is because N equals one and he is a biologist and he can inform consent himself, right? So it's not that weird of a thing, it, it's not that weird of a thing in a performance artist realm. It might be a little strange for the biology community and the science community and biomedical community, but that's when I start to think about, well, why did metabolic kitchens come to be? They came to be because we needed to see and chart and account for everything. How can we do that in a microbial way, right? So those are the kinds of things that, um, that I'm thinking about, yeah. Um, I do want to take the time to uh, thank you, Rajan. Thanks for the, the, the kudos. Um, and Sarah, I do want to address your question. Does an element of fear keep us from having these conversations? It seems like we lean into knowledge or knowledges as opposed to knowledges as you discuss them, because in some ways it feels more complicated, uncomfortable, scary to think something can be known in so many different ways. Yeah, I think fear of being wrong is a very big and long-standing, uh, a long-standing thing. And I think that 
we've stopped leading with humility. We've learned, and I say we as like an, an academic, especially, right? Of like, I am an expert in this. I know this. I have a terminal degree in this field. And therefore, right? I only know one small piece of this tiny little world of this tiny little prick in the whole universe of knowledge. And that's, you know, from a very particular time, from a very particular training. So I can't claim to know anything. And I think that um, when we start to lose that humility and instead be kind of governed by fear of being wrong, bad news, bad news. Um, And I think that's why it's good to be around people who maybe don't think the same way that you do. Also to remind you that there are other ways of knowing. So yeah, I think Sarah, you're, you're, you're highlighting something that is especially relevant today, not just in academic culture, like, in you know, think, look at cancel culture, like it's everywhere, right? We have such a low tolerance now for being wrong. We have such a low tolerance and I think that needs to change. Actually, just to to add on to that, um, yeah. I I wanted to um, just yeah, I know we're almost out of time here, but the um, the your comments about the um, the use of metaphors and language I think are super important because one these things are always evolving, both our understanding but languages as well. Um, yeah. But I also think that there is like um, crossing disciplinary boundaries can introduce kind of new realms where you know, suddenly there's a whole like lexicon that is, you know, you're trying to grasp and use yeah. and maybe use in a yeah. manuscript or whatever. And yeah. so I'm curious your, your thoughts. I mean, you, you kind of had a, a comment in your talk about, um, I wrote it down, but it was something like, um, use of, uh, specific metaphors isn't always innocent or something like that. Like they're, they're meant to manipulate, but you know, there's the other side of that is that sometimes it's just done out of ignorance with no ill will, or, or, and, and, you know, the, the um, grass versus prairie example, you know, I think is a great one where, you know, I remember when that paper came out and I really liked it, the, um, the concept of like, you know, grass getting killed and like, you know, things taking over and invading. Um, but certainly it's, it's been improved upon since then. Yes. And just the, the kind of, um, both the utility of things being used incorrectly or poorly as yeah. a, foundation for improvement, mm-hmm. I think is super important. And thinking through like how to create a forum and atmosphere where that's okay. Because yeah. like we've used words incorrectly in papers before we've been, um, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, um, the, the um, you know, see, seen unkind comments related to that um, mm-hmm. from people where if you go back in their manuscripts 10 years earlier, they also were misusing those words. So it's like, they've been on the same journey that we're on. It's just, they've been on it earlier and somehow, you know, took up this kind of self-righteous sort of role in enforcing language that they've learned just a little bit ahead of us. And so, um, so anyway, I, I just love to hear kind of how you can create an atmosphere where it's okay for people to mess up because we're all coming along and kind of assume goodwill rather than ill will and um, try to create, I think, you know, creating that sort of open environment is better for the field and better for everyone, but I'd love to hear your comments on that. Yeah, I mean, one of my mantras for me is together we can know more, right? And it's, it's, it's this mind boggling thing of like, 
got to plant that flag first, got to publish first, got to get that. And that sort of like sharp elbow hyper competitiveness is certainly not the arena within which we can discuss, oh, did you mean this or did you mean that? Oh, this might be a bad, definitely not the place for that, right? Um, and I, I think that there is, I echo your question, how can we create the, how can we normalize that sort of iterative aspect of language, right? Language changes. That's what's so beautiful about it. That's why we don't speak in thee and thou and thy anymore, right? And that's great. We can still reference it when we want to for particular things, but we don't need to all of the time. So given the sort of malleability of language, yeah, there is such a hope for that sort of iterative minutia, that, you know, building of a lexicon together, um, that, yeah, completely gets lost in the face of competition. I do want to clarify one thing, though, that when I say um, metaphors are not innocent, um, I don't mean that they are manipulative. I mean that because they're not innocent, it is one's responsibility to choose and actively choose. And yes, there might be an ignorance, but try to do your best at figuring out what that entails. And if you make a mistake, you've made a mistake and you try to do better. And is that not why we're here on this planet? <laughs> right? Not to get existential, but yeah, I think that there is room for that sort of making mistakes, learning better, learning together, iterating, trying to kind of aim for this cyclical way of doing and always improving and building on, right? And that's hard to do in that sort of crank it, publish, perish, got to get it out. Right, right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. That was amazing, Maya. Yeah. Thanks. I feel like we could keep talking about this for a very long time and we should, because that's where the research should be, oh, should totally. be heading. Um, yeah. I also just want to quickly add for your N of one studies, it is very common for uh, gut microbiome people to have their stool in mm -hmm. freezers in lab at any given point. So you could walk into any lab and have plenty N of one studies of just people yeah. taking yeah. time for samples. So there's a lot of potential papers out there. Um, but yeah, no, thank you so much, everyone who attended. Thank you, Maya, David, and Justin. Um, this is really fantastic. Our next speaker is going to be on June 20th. It's going to be Dr. Rob Dunn that Maya mentioned uh, from the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University and the Center of Evolutionary Hologenomics at the University of Copenhagen. And he's going to be discussing the evolutionary relationship between humans, microbes, and food fermentation practice. Uh, so that's also a great talk that's going to come up soon. So um, yeah, uh, we'll see you all in a few weeks. And thanks again. Great. Right. Good seeing you all. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. Have a great